This episode is brought to you by Canada's Kitchen Store. Whether you're ready to bake up a storm or expand your culinary expertise, Canadian Tire has your back. They're your one-stop shop for all your kitchen needs. Cookware, coffee makers, stand mixers, they carry all the top brands all in one place. Check their wide assortment of quality brands and hottest kitchen products. Visit canadiantire.ca or a store near you. Canadian Tire, Canada's kitchen store. Welcome to DIY for Business. It's Russ and Greg with you. Today, we are talking about buying and selling your business, which, Greg, we both sold a business. We've not purchased a business, though. I've never purchased a business. And yeah, I have sold multiple businesses. And this is kind of an exciting topic because usually you and I are spending time you know, helping companies grow their company after they've started it. You know, How do you get it going? How do you grow it? But for a lot of company owners, there needs to be an end game. Like they need to know how mm-hmm. am I going to eventually, what's my exit strategy? How am I going to sell this company? Am I going to cash out at the end of this? Or in other cases, some people say, you know what? Starting a company just sounds like a lot of work, you guys. Maybe I should just buy a company <laughs> that's already been successful and right. they need help to figure out how to evaluate when a company is a good purchase or not. Luckily, We have an expert at this today joining us. His name is David Barnett. David is an author, coach, consultant, uh, an ex-business broker that has really um, dedicated himself to helping people figure out how to sell and buy businesses. Welcome, David. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for being here. Uh, This is like one of those topics where we've sold a business, but we've we've not been in that buyer's chair. So I guess maybe that's where we start. Like uh, in in buying a business, I, I almost feel like in a way I would go into that like buying a used car, you know, because you don't know exactly what the problems have been. <laughs> you know, you don't exactly. So, I, yeah, I can see that. I guess give us some some advice on that for those thinking about buying a business. Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, why don't I describe some of the main groups of people that I talk with who are interested in buying businesses? Yeah. Because it really... They, they kind of group themselves into three distinct categories. Um, the number one number one group, and not the biggest, but the first one we'll talk about, are people who already have a business. And so they're looking at growing by acquiring. And so if you imagine you know, a, a business maybe that's in your hometown and they'd like to double in size, but to do so organically might be difficult because of fierce competition in their market they might look to buying a similar business in the next town over. And so um, they would grow their business by acquiring the new one, but they would actually be able to do more with both businesses once they had combined them because, for example, their purchasing volume would increase. They might be able to lower their costs and maybe other synergies might accrue. They might be able to do some functions in in one head office that they don't have to duplicate in the second one. And so people who are growing through acquisition is, is one group. The next group would be people who, for whatever reason, are not able to navigate the labor market. So if you imagine someone maybe who's new to the country, who has some kind of professional designation in another country that isn't recognized in their new home, and they need an income, but they may not be able to practice what they've trained to do. 
And so they're going out there and they're looking at buying a business in order to literally acquire an income. They're almost buying a job in a lot of situations. Hmm. And then the other group would be people who want to be entrepreneurs. They want to be business owners and they maybe always thought about getting into business, but they've reached a stage in their life where suddenly the risk seems a little more acute. So these would be people that are getting into middle age and they've got a family, they've got children maybe heading to college soon, they've got a big mortgage and they know the failure rate for new businesses. And so they figure if I just buy something that already has customers and employees and processes and systems, at least on the very first day I own it, I'll be making money. And then it gets into all the other questions that you mentioned about whether or not this is like buying a used car or not. We, right. Those are the mo- three motivation camps, I guess. And then once people get out in the marketplace and they have to start to look at these different businesses and, and try to make sure that they're getting into the right vehicle, it's going to take them where they want to go. Yeah. If you don't mind, I'd like to jump off of that last group that you're referring to buying mm-hmm. a business to kind of reduce their risk so they don't have to kind of get something started. They think, okay, I got a revenue stream already built in. This seems like a, a much safer bet. I bet you it's not always a safer bet if they don't know how to evaluate a business the proper way. And, and I think that's where you've done a really good job of, you know, helping people figure out what should I be looking at to really buy a good business and not buy that lemon <laughs> we're talking about the used car, because there's a lot of lemon businesses out there. Well, uh, you're, you're absolutely right. I, at, at its most basic, it comes down to two questions. Number one, what is the cash flow that someone would enjoy by being the owner of the business? That cash flow is going to determine often the price that someone's willing to pay for that business. But then the second question is, will that cash flow continue under my stewardship? And that's where you have to start to really examine, are there special skills, talents, abilities, knowledge, et cetera, the current owner has that that the buyer may not have? And how well organized is the business? Do we have processes and procedures in place and systems and all the tools that make a business easier to run? The number one thing that I always encourage people to do is to do a self-examination, sort of a a self-audit about your experience and your skills and see what is it that you are an expert in. Because being able to exploit your own expertise and your own experience is going to be where you're going to find the best opportunities. I, I tell people that the real uh, bonanza, if you will, is if you find a business that is profitable today, but has problems that you know how to fix, because then you can acquire that business mm. and you can pay a fair price for the cash flow that's there. And then you can start to apply your own skills and experience into, into fixing those problems and, and improve uh, the cash flow and the performance of the business. If you buy a business on the other side of that, like, you know, that you don't know how to fix those problems, it's it's not going to continue the cash flow. You're going to just inherit the problems and make them worse. Potentially, <laughs> and that's, yeah. that's huge problems. Yeah. Now, you you actually, that makes me think of uh, one of the books you wrote, the, the 21 Stupid Things That People Do When Buying a Business. And let's get into some of those. I don't want to reveal all 21 because then nobody's going to buy the book, but let's <laughs> let's talk about a few of those. Yeah, sure. Well, the 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 number one is uh, people not taking into account the value of their own labor. So oh, when, yeah. when you get into the Definitely. world of buying businesses, there are some conventions about how businesses are presented for sale. And these have evolved over time throughout the business brokerage industry. 
And one of them is to present, now I'm, I'm talking about main street businesses, which are typically businesses with a cash flow of under half a million dollars of EBITDA. Small main street businesses are typically presented with a cash flow figure called seller's discretionary earnings. And a lot of new first time business buyers will go into the market and they'll see that number and they'll say, wow, if I buy this business, that's the number, that's the money I'm going to get. But it isn't really because out of that seller's discretionary earnings figure, there's, there's a bunch of things that actually have to be paid for before you get the rest of the money. So the very first thing that has to be taken into account is debt service. And then we have to take care of taxes and that seller's discretionary earnings number is almost always derived off of an EBITDA figure where they add back non-cash expenses like amortization and depreciation. And the, and the funny thing about amortization and depreciation is that, yeah, it's a non-cash expense, but it really does represent things wearing out in the business, especially mm -hmm. if you're talking about, um, you know, you guys are in the States, so people are able to do accelerated depreciation on certain assets in their business which means that depreciation and amortization numbers don't mean anything anyway. Like they don't actually represent things wearing out over the course of time, the way that right. the accounting profession had originally set that up. So you need to take into account any capital expenditures for replacing machinery and equipment. You also have to um, be able to get, take home a salary that you can live on out of that SDE number. And you have to get a return on the cash that you bring into the deal. So there's all these different needs that have to be serviced by that number. And one of the mistakes people make is that they, they fail to recognize, um, you know, the value of their own time, because to get that SDE number, you need to go in there and work full time as the owner manager. So that's, that's one of the biggest ones, biggest mistakes I see people make. Well, I would assume that you would advise people to have somebody in a, with a financial background to actually look at the books to help them evaluate that, right? Well, exactly. You know, when there's a big, big difference between a business that is put up for sale and ends up being represented by a business broker and a business that is not, quote unquote, for sale, and you just happen to open a conversation with that business owner and you start talking about selling. In the case of a business being put up for sale by a business broker, you would hope that a certain amount of preparation had been made in order to make a presentation to you. So back in my brokerage days, and when I work with sellers today, what we do is we take all the financials for the business and we do what's called a normalization. There are things that happen in small businesses that owners do in order to minimize their tax burden, for example, or to give themselves other kinds of advantages. And, and I'm not talking about funny business, perfectly legit things people do, choose to do. <laughs> but when we look at the business, what the question I ask is, if we had sold this business to a stranger who ran this business by the book, what would their books look like? And so, mm -hmm. so I'll give you an idea. You know, Sometimes you'll get a business owner who, because of a cash flow crunch in the business, will underpay themselves. They'll pay themselves less than an actual professional manager in that industry should earn. Well, when I go back and do a normalization, I'm going to add back whatever they did pay themselves. And I'm going to put, put in an expense for what a true fair market wage would be for that kind of person. The other place where we see this a lot is in the case of real estate. If a business owns the building that they're in, you're not going to see a rent expense on the, on the P&L. But evaluating a business is very different from evaluating a piece of real estate. If we had a real estate appraiser come in and look at that building, 
they would look at the market rents in the neighborhood and they would figure out what kind of cash flow that building should generate. And that's what would determine its value. Well, I want to separate the value of the going concern business from the building. And the way that I do that is by finding out that market rent and putting it in as an expense on the PL. And now I get to look at the performance of the business as though the landlord were some separate arm's length entity. So that's what we talk about normalization. And what we can find when we go through that process is that sometimes what owners believe their business is doing is very different from the way that a buyer might potentially be looking at it. I've never bought a business, so mm-hmm. <laughs> asking questions that might be obvious here. But so should you, like, who should you have like advising you? Greg mentioned uh, some sort of financial advice, like bringing in lawyers. Like what, what else are you bringing in? What should be kind of in your arsenal when you're approaching uh, either a business broker or just approaching someone to buy their business? Okay. So you're talking about a team to, to buy a business, right? The, the right. team actually varies depending on the type of industry that you're in. So every one of these teams is going to require a CPA and an attorney at, at some point. Um, I work with people and I coach them through the process and I, the, the process we follow is one based on the idea of trying to limit expense until we need the different people on the team to step up. So for example, we will look at when I'm working with a buyer, we will look at the financial information that's presented to us and we'll make some kind of offer based entirely on the fact that all of that is believed to be true, right? So the the offer is subject to a due diligence because often you can't come to an agreement. And so why would you want to be paying, you know, your CPA to help you in due diligence if you can't even come (laughs) to terms with the person, right? Yeah. That's exactly where I was going with the question. Yeah. Yeah. So So the first stage is to get an agreement, assuming that everything is correct. And then you start looking Mm -hmm. into the numbers. And when the CPA starts to say, you know what, everything seems to look okay. Well, now we bring the attorney in because they're going to have a whole other set of things that they're going to be cognizant of and and try to help, you know, to avoid problems. And this is why we use these these non-binding agreements or agreements that have big, you know, exit doors that'll let you out of them if things aren't the uh, the way that you believe. And then, you know, based on your industry, then you get into all kinds of other technical experts. You you get a business that's heavily geared towards online stuff, then you're going to need your, you know, your SEO traffic uh, analytic person who's going to be able to show you how to look at the back end stuff if you're not an expert in that field. If if it's just a business with a lot of machinery, you're going to want different ex, uh, you know, technical people that can come and look at machinery and give you an opinion of of how long something's going to last. You know, I've... I've been in businesses before that have had 50 and 60 year old pieces of machinery that were very robust, <laughs> were well-maintained. And when they were examined, someone said, you know what? It's got an electric motor, probably needs to be replaced every 10 years. Other than that, it looks good. And so it, you really need to have an understanding of what kind of industry you're getting into. And then you build the team based on your target industry, which is another big problem that buyers get into is not knowing what they want to buy. So <laughs> I, I, I draw the distinction between uh, grocery shopping and window shopping. You know, and if, you, if you think about you going to the grocery store, most people that go to the grocery store have, have what? What do they have? A grocery list. Exactly. They, they, they know what they need, right? They're, they're going yep. to pick up, you know, some rice and some vegetables and some apples and, and what have you. And so People who have a list, who know what they're looking for, are going to be able to actually go out and seek out what they're looking for. 
And if you know that you want a machine shop in Northern California, for example, you can go find a list of them, right? And then you can actually go knock on doors (laughs) because you know where they are. Whereas the person who says, I'm looking for a business, but, and here's the term that we often hear, I'm industry agnostic, which just means, which just means they don't know. Right. Right. And, and the, the problem with that is that every business, every industry has certain conventions. So right. I'll give you a quick example. In, in the construction industry, you will have cost of goods sold that will have your materials and your direct labor, but the people that work at the office are part of the overhead labor, right? And most construction businesses, that's how they set up their P&L. Well, if you keep going from one industry to another to another, every time you look at a new set of books, you got another learning curve to go through. And so it just takes a lot of time to work your way through the deals. One of my, uh, one of the guys who's in my group coaching program uh, is actually in California and he's already done three acquisitions and it takes him about 40 minutes to go through a set of numbers on a business to know whether he's interested in continuing with them or not. So he can very quickly triage whether or not it makes sense for him to talk further with those people because he's now looked at dozens of sets of financials within one industry. He can very quickly pick out how these guys are operating vis-a-vis you know, their peers and whether or not it makes sense to pursue it. And, and you know, when you mentioned the industry agnostic uh, people, I was thinking that's going to the grocery store with an empty stomach. You know, it's like, well, oh, okay, I'm just going to grab everything. I'll grab anything. <laughs> All right. We, we've got so much more uh, to cover here. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll continue the conversation. BDC is all for entrepreneurs, all for builders, go-getters, and problem solvers, all for driving the economy, fostering innovation, and creating value beyond profit, all for building more inclusive and sustainable businesses, all for sharing our expertise and resources and helping you grow your business every step of the way, all for entrepreneurs, BDC, financing, advising, smarts. This episode is brought to you by the Ford Maverick. You've planned every detail, booked your camping spot, and finished packing. With everything organized, all that's left to do is hit the road. Good thing you have the Ford Maverick, the all-new compact truck that comes equipped with a customizable flex bed, giving you the versatility to help pack what you want, how you want, leaving your second row open for friends. The all-new Ford Maverick, built to defy expectations. Learn more at Ford.ca. Welcome back to DIY for Business. It's Russ and Greg with you. We're talking with David Barnett about buying and selling your business. So far, we've talked about buying a business and the various things that you need to look at. Well, which makes me think about franchises because a franchise, especially you mentioned a few different groups of people, uh, the the risk might be high for starting a business. So they might want to jump into something that's already established. And a way to do that would be a franchise. What do people have to think about when looking into a franchise. Yeah, well, I'm glad you asked this question because my my second book was called Franchise Warnings. It's one of only a handful of books on Amazon about the potential downsides of the franchise business model. Um, here's, here's the truth, is that if you start a new business from scratch or if you start a franchise with the help of a franchisor, um, you still have to find customers. 
And so right. people are out there in the market today getting the product or service that you're going to offer from someone else. And you're going to have to convince them that they should get it from you. And, and you know, the system and the branding and everything offered by the franchisor is designed to help make that easier. Absolutely correct. Um, but you are still starting a new business. And there are still the same downside risks of any other startup. Now, one of the things that I like about franchises is that there is this head office taking care of some of the stuff that a, an entrepreneur or business owner would normally have to do. So if you if you think about, you know, and, and we all can imagine a restaurant franchise, right? Because there's so many of them around. Um, you know, mm-hmm. the seasonal specials, the the promotions, the things that happen every month that make things fresh and new and attract new people. If you're an independent business, you have to take the time out to plan all that stuff. If you are part of a franchise, someone at head office is doing market research and they're figuring out, you know, the best way to do it. And they just deliver it all to you. And here you go. This is what we're doing for the next month kind of thing. And so if you like the idea of having somebody else sort of in business with you, helping you along the way, providing feedback, training, benchmarking, uh, I know a few franchisees who like the fact that they can get benchmarking data against other similar locations and see just how they're performing, especially when there's big macroeconomic changes happening, right? You, you might think the sky is falling where you are uh, and you know to know what's happening in other places can be helpful. Well, you can actually take the best of both worlds because you can go out there and you can buy an existing franchise location because then you're going to be getting into the franchise with all the support they offer and you're going to be buying an existing business, so you'll be able to see what the performance has been, and you won't be facing that same startup problem. Yeah, I completely agree. I, I've worked with so many different business owners that are participating in a franchise, right? They become a franchisee, and they love the fact that they are buying into a community, right? That mm-hmm. of, of other franchisees, they share ideas, they you know help each other a lot. And, you know, those are that the healthiest franchises when the franchisees and the franchisors giving them some guidance, some leadership and a lot of resources, like you're saying. The one thing that I always hear from franchisees that they wish they had a little more flexibility on was marketing, because mm-hmm. so many of the, the franchisees will they'll tell me they go, you know what, I have to, you know, contribute to a co-op advertising fund every single month. And really that taps me out. I don't have any money to do any marketing that I want to do that I think would be just for my location. You know, I'm assuming this is a situation where there's multiple locations in a, in a, a larger area. And, you know, the franchisor is telling me I got to, you know, do the co-op, you know, for the television and the radio and, and print. But I want to do something just for my location, but I'm tapped out. Yeah. Have you dealt with that? And, and how do you, what do you advise? This is, this is part of your exploration and due diligence before you get involved. Um, you know, here in my hometown where I live, um, I know that the co-op ad fund that the local subway franchisees are paying into is split between a national and a regional plan. And the local franchisees get together and they decide how they want to spend that local money. And so they feel very empowered because they know that the, the big national office is doing, you know, your television ads and your sports, you know, sponsorships and that kind of thing. But then locally, they can do a radio program if they want to, to advertise the new, you know, special flavor of sub kind of thing. Um, I've also actually helped people do due diligence on franchises 
where we've looked at the financial statements of the ad fund and found that they were investing in notes issued by the franchisor, meaning Mm -hmm. that the ad fund money was actually being lent to the franchisor. It wasn't Mm -hmm. being spent on advertising at all. And, you know, here's the problem is that most of the franchisees, they're not people who are really able or, or willing or probably didn't even think of it, you know, doing their own exploration of those financial statements are probably issued in a very thick package every year full of all kinds of other stuff. And this was buried within it because I was curious. I wanted to know where does the money go? And in fact, it wasn't going into marketing at all. So you discovered this for them? For my client, yeah. And I, it was wow. one of the reasons why they didn't go forward with the deal because yeah, they, they realized what the problem was. <laughs> and and yeah. um, I, you know, I was actually concerned about the franchise... A lot of franchises, they will seek to control the franchisees through the real estate. So remember the movie Founder about McDonald's, right? Yeah. You know, and, and at a certain point, Ray Kroc realized he should own <laughs> the properties and he should rent the properties to the to the franchisees, right? Yeah. Well, some franchise train, chains try to do this through obtaining the master lease of a location, then subletting it to their franchisee. Well, here's what happens when when times turn tough is if franchisees start closing, the franchisor is still liable on the lease to the landlord, right? And mm-hmm. so the franchisee might go bankrupt. They've got no money, right? Right. The franchisor now has to pick up the tab for that empty location. They're not generating any revenue. Mm-hmm. And so what ends up happening is they now face a liability. So in this particular case that I was looking at with the client, I actually raised the question, I, I wonder if these guys are going to go bankrupt. If more locations close, their liabilities could grow. They could go under. My client thought, well, that's no problem because then they'll just go away and I won't have to pay royalties. And I said, well, let's look at the lease. Because what the lease <laughs> said is that in the event of bankruptcy of the tenant, the lease went back to the landlord. And I, I pointed out that the tenant in this case is the franchisor, not the franchisee. So this fellow I was working with would have invested in a business in a location, suddenly the lease would have been removed from him and the landlord would have known he no longer had to pay royalties, which is probably just delicious sounding to a landlord who wants yeah. to increase the rent by a few points. <laughs> yeah. Right? Oh, man. He knows that his tenant has just gotten rid of one of his biggest expenses. Oh, goodness. (laughs) One of of the key points that I put into that book, Franchise Warnings, is that when you are in a franchise system, you don't actually own a business. You are leasing one. Because if you think about an apartment rental, I mean, you can enjoy the space while you're paying the rent, but you're probably not supposed to paint the walls. And you're not supposed to change the windows and you're not supposed to, you know, do a whole bunch of other things because it's not really yours. And that's the way it is with a franchise. You know, the other thing I think of is that whole subway $5 foot long thing from a few years back, right? Where they basically put this campaign into place, which $5 foot long is great in some areas, but you put it into areas with high rent. <laughs> yeah, your sales go up, but you're profits are way down because you've got to sell these sandwiches for less than what you're paying. What? You can't make it up on volume. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I think we need a hundred thousand sandwiches before. uh, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) All right. We we've got to get into actually like selling a business as well. And you know, some people might actually think that selling your business 
might signal failure. Let, let's get into that when we come back. We'll take a short break. This episode is brought to you by EA Sports NHL 22. Are you ready for breakthrough hockey? Powered by Frostbite, EA Sports NHL 22 gets the superstar treatment with a huge leap forward in graphics, along with the arrival of superstar X-Factors that let you unleash unique player abilities that make stars feel like stars as they influence games in new ways. Reserved for the league's most elite players, superstar X-Factor abilities separate the best from the rest in tangible ways that you can feel when they're on the ice. Breakthrough Hockey is here. EA Sports NHL 22. Available now. This episode is brought to you by Ford and their offering of all-new electric vehicles. They're built using technology that helps make the revolutionary feel familiar. The all-electric Ford Mustang Mach-E and the F-150 Lightning are 118 years in the making and the result of one dream, to build the unexpected. Learn more about what's next at ford.ca slash electric. Built Ford Proud. Welcome back to DIY for Business. We are with David Barnett, expert in buying and selling a business. And up to this point, we've been really talking about buying a company, whether it's a franchise or, or non-franchise. But now we want to kind of talk a little bit about selling a company. And, and Russ mentioned before the break is like some people might think of it as like, did I fail? Is that why I have to sell the company? And I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm guessing that a lot of people do have that sense when they're about to sell. And I, I would think a lot of people are saying, I'm a total success. I, I'm selling it for X amount of money. I, I made profit on this. I, I made a good living for 20 years and now I'm getting out and I got my retirement. I'm sure you deal with both sides of this. And I'm just curious, what, what's your take on both sides of this, David? Well, you know, in fact, about 90% of business owners don't even really think about it at all. <laughs> so so the, the, the top five reasons why small Main Street businesses go up for sale are number one is burnout, fatigue, and boredom. And so if you imagine doing a job for 20 years that you didn't like, what would you do? You'd quit and find a new one, right? Or you'd find a new one and quit. Sure. But a lot of these people have a great degree of their family's net worth tied up in the business. So they can't just quit. They need to eventually find someone to, to buy it. And so there's poor health, divorce, the need to relocate. And the last one is retirement. So out of those top five reasons, only one of them is planned for. The other four just kind of happen. When you have an unfortunate meeting with a doctor or an unfortunate meeting with your spouse or, or you realize one day that you really don't want to answer your cell phone because you're sick of your employees or your customers, right? Right, right. And so, <laughs> and so uh, very few business owners, I would say about 10% of them, actually look at their business as some sort of asset that is amongst their portfolio of, of property and, and investments that they are developing and building in order to one day you know, sell and exit from. And, and here's the other thing that, that, and I know you guys are in, in, uh, in the Bay area, which is kind of like the ground central for it and all the internet tech whiz bang, uh, stuff that goes on in the world of main street businesses, the selling multiples are quite low. And so most of the time when I talk with a business owner and I explain to them what their business will likely sell for, generally the response goes something like this. Um, what, 
if I just stayed for a couple of years, I could have the same money. Why would I sell for that amount? And they're absolutely correct. So these, we're not talking about people cashing out with some great windfall of money like a Mark Zuckerberg might, right? We're, we're talking about people who they need to reach a point where there's some a pressing personal need for them to turn the page to the next chapter in their life. And they realize that they can't carry on being the owner. Some people make a transition into semi-retirement where they can get the systems in place and the managers in place and they can start to back off and they end up working 10 hours a week and they can kind of do that half the time from Florida. You know, those are those are very rare, very rare. And you know that book, uh, Michael Gerber's book, The E-Myth? It, it all oh, relates yeah. to that mm-hmm. because... Most of the business owners are are technically inclined. They are involved in some way with the work that's being done, or they come from that. They've grown from that to become the owners. And so they there's a certain skill set that they lack in order to be able to carry that on to a, a fully absentee kind of arrangement. Remember that group of buyers I mentioned, the middle-aged people who want to own a business, but they don't want the risk of starting something new? Right. Those people tend to come from the ranks of middle management of larger organizations or the military or something like Mm -hmm. that. They come to the table with an understanding of process and procedures and SOPs and checklists. And a lot of the times the, the business that they're looking at grew to a certain point within the capability and the competency of that person that started it. And then it kind of got stuck when it reached the maximum bandwidth capacity of that person's management skill. It gets sold to this middle manager type person that comes in and they're the ones that actually implement all of the stuff required for the business to then start to grow. And, and you'll often see, I use the example of an auto repair place. You know, if you can imagine a, a mechanic opens an auto repair place, he's fixing one car at a time. And then he hires another person to help him out. But he's still ordering parts, answering the phone, greeting customers. Eventually, he grows to two or three technicians, but he's still trying to run everything. It's only when you get to the point where someone's willing to start delegating authority that you can actually start to grow the number of technicians, the bays, et cetera, into a bigger and bigger business. I have a follow-up question to that because I've known actually a couple of that exactly what you're saying, like a middle manager, like I know processes, I know how to evaluate, you know, financing, I know how to do the books and stuff like that. And they go in and they buy an existing, and it was funny because you mentioned auto repair. They bought an auto repair shop. They knew nothing about cars. They knew nothing about auto repair, but they thought just because they knew how to kind of manage a business, that they were going to be successful at any business they went into. Mm. Well, they were not successful at running this auto repair shop because you know they couldn't talk to customers. They had no idea about the industry. And I'm just curious from your, your experience, have you seen that happen a lot? Or do most middle managers that land up buying a business get a business that they have some type of background in? Well, remember how I talked about expertise? When, when I'm talking with people that want to buy a business, I ask them, what's your work experience? Go back to your teenager years. Like, you know, did you work in a gas station? Did you work in a grocery store? Like go all the way back because all of these experiences are, are formative and help you see the way that you, you know, perceive and understand the world around you. And so like something completely new, I caution people against it. 
you you should have some degree of familiarity. And and here, you know, is is the the biggest thing that I find is a big aha eye opener. Um, I once had a fried chicken franchise for sale. Okay, it was great business, and it produced you know six figure revenue for the owner, and he worked there every day. And all kinds of middle manager types, bankers, government workers, stuff came in to look at this business because of the numbers. And when they would meet the seller, his name was Tony, Tony would show them where he had been burned by the French fry machine. And he would show them where his finger got cut by the French fry cutter because he wouldn't let any of his staff clean it because he was afraid of a workplace health and safety claim, right? So he was like, I'm the only one that cleans that machine because it's so dangerous with the blades. And he, he had been cut by it himself. And so when these people started to look at the day-to-day of this six-figure opportunity, the more they talked with Tony, the more it looked like work, right? And any of them would have known what his day-to-day was like if they had gone and worked in such a place. And so I learned as a broker, if I had somebody coming in looking at buying something like a fast food restaurant, I would say, have you ever worked in one? And if they said no, I would say, well, why don't you go down to McDonald's? Just tell the manager you're willing to work Saturday nights and they'll hire you because even the teenagers don't want to work Saturday night, right? <laughs> and, what, and what was amazing to me, guys, is that most of these people would recoil in shock that I would suggest that they should go work part-time at the McDonald's if they wanted to buy a restaurant. And I said, you can actually get paid to get industry experience that will help you in this journey. Ever heard of the book Psycho-Cybernetics by Maxwell Maltz? He's, he's the, the father of modern self-image. And he's a, he was a plastic surgeon back in the 1950s. And he discovered self-image because people were coming into his office with crazy requests. They would say, I need you to make my ears smaller so I'll be a better salesman. Just weird, weird <laughs> stuff like that. And he, he began to realize that, that the way people saw themselves was important in the way that they behaved. And so I, I began to realize that I had to make sure that the business these buyers were looking at actually fit within their self-image. So I started to ask questions like, you know, oh, you, so you're like the VP, regional VP at the bank, eh? Like, what do you do on the weekends? You hang out at the golf course? Um, what is it going to be like for you to explain um, to the guys at the golf course when they see you've got a burn on your arm from the French fry fryer, right? Is is this going to be something that you're going to be able to to square away with your perception of who you are? And and it, you know, some people would say like that's a weird question, but you know what? They would think about it. They would think about it. And and the reason it became such a valuable question for me is because even if that buyer checked all the boxes and did everything along this pathway before closing day, they would have that discussion in their own head late at night while laying in bed. And if they couldn't see themselves doing this business, the closing wouldn't happen. And I didn't want to be wasting my time as a broker working on commissions. And so I started to bring some of this stuff up to the front and I found that it helped me save some time with certain people. Should we always have an exit strategy when we start a business? You know, people ask me that question a lot, and I think that there's a place for an exit strategy. If you are going to start a business, I, I think that your focus has to be on getting to the point where you're you're breaking even and you're paying your bills, right? Because there could be many pivots mm-hmm. in the beginning as you build up to that point. 
that's when you have to start thinking about the exit strategy. Once you know you have a viable business, because if you know if you never get to viability, you know, well, what's the point? What's, yeah, nobody's if gonna you, buy it. <laughs> if you buy a business, <laughs> if you buy a business, then you need to have your exit strategy at that moment, and and you gotcha. know that you're already dealing with a more substantial viable business when you're buying it because because you're willing to pay money for it, right? And and. You know, there's a lot of opportunity out there. There's a lot of people that that I listen to sometimes in podcasts that'll throw out ideas about how you can take a business and change it in different ways and make it more valuable. There's there's all kinds of opportunity. And the thing about the biz, the world, the market of buying and selling businesses is it's got to be the least transparent market there is. Um, you could go knock on the door of someone who owns a business and say, "I'd like to buy your business. Would you like to sell?" And they might say, "No, my business isn't for sale." It could actually be listed with a broker, but they will still tell you, no, my business isn't for sale because of the need for secrecy in this marketplace. Um, I talk a lot with business brokers in my work. I was talking with one recently um, up in um, up in near Portland, and he was telling me that about a third of the listings of their firm aren't even on any websites. So you have to become known to the broker. They have to know that you have the means and ability and capability to do a deal before you're even shown the potential opportunity that might fit with you. And, and it all comes down to the requirement for secrecy because if it becomes public that a business is for sale, there are ramifications with employees, major customers, communities, you know, like all kinds of things that are bad can happen if there's doubt uh, you mentioned earlier about, you know, do people see it as a sign of failure if a business goes up for sale? It's an interesting question because for the average person who's not interested in business, you know, they don't listen to a podcast like this. They're busy, you know, watching football or basketball or whatnot. And when they do run face-to-face with news about business, it's usually a front lo- a front page headline saying the pulp mill is looking for a new owner. Well, why? Because it's, it's failing. Right. And so to the average person, a business being up for sale can sometimes equal a business is failing. And if people start to worry about that, you know, your best employees start to look for new jobs. You know, customers start to demand cash on delivery terms. You know, your customers worry that the warranty that you give isn't very good because you might be closing down, et cetera. Just the news that a business is for sale can actually destroy it. And this is why it's so important that this is kept under wraps. Once the deal is done, it can be announced with a degree of fanfare and certitude. Hey, the business has been sold and here's the new owner and he's got great plans for growth and we're going to be hiring. You know, don't worry about your job. Call up your cousin, see if he wants a job, right? And and so everyone's concern and worry can be abated immediately because you've got this new person coming in who can then promote the fact that they've got you know, plans for growth or stability or what have you. David, this has been so interesting for me. I I really thank you for coming on the show. And honestly, I have so many other questions that I just couldn't fit in. Uh, we'd love to have you back at some point to kind of dive into the the other points of buying and selling a business. I hope you uh, join us again. Oh, I'd love to come back. I'm available anytime, guys. And you know, Greg, to get some of those questions answered, uh, David's got like five years or so of content on his YouTube channel. <laughs> so where can people find uh, your YouTube channel and your uh, podcast? Yeah, sure. If you if you just go looking for David C. Barnett on any podcast player or on YouTube, you'll, you'll come across me. And if you go to davidcbarnett.com, that's my blog site. 
um, there's links there to, to all my different content. And I put a blog post for every new video as well. So there's all kinds of ways you can connect with me and follow my stuff. And, and all of the new content is driven by questions from the audience. So you're, you're sure to find something relevant if you're interested in learning more about buying and selling businesses. Awesome. Well, we'll put a link to that in the description as well. Thank you so much for joining us today, David. Have a great one, guys. Thanks a lot, David. All right. Thank you for listening, subscribing, and reviewing DIY for Business, a part of the Electrocast network of podcasts. The subjects that we cover on this podcast are selected with the goal of helping your business grow. All of the information provided is opinion-based and you may want to consult a professional to discuss your exact business situation. Greg and I want your company to succeed and we are happy to take your questions. We would also love to hear your suggestions for future episodes. If there's an area where you need solid business advice or help, let us know. We might be able to build an entire episode around it and get your questions answered. You can reach out to us by sending us a direct message on Twitter or visiting us on our website at DIY for Business podcast.com. Both of those are linked in the podcast description. Also, we love talking to business owners. If you would like to join us in a future episode, please do reach out on our website or Twitter. We thank you for listening and subscribing to DIY for Business, where you are not alone. Trick ass.